Hey everyone, thanks for checking out the Human Performance Outliers podcast. In case you haven't noticed, we are now up on Patreon. You can find us at patreon.com backslash HPO podcast. You can also just click on the link in the podcast notes and it'll take you right to our page. For the listeners that have already joined us, thank you so much. Your support is greatly appreciated. Uh, We have some pretty cool goodies that we're rolling out for the Patreon supporters, including a front-of-the-line Q&A, some early podcast release options, as well as the chance to even join the show. So please consider checking out that page if you haven't yet. Also, if you do listen to us on a podcast hosting site, if you have the option, please consider subscribing. By subscribing, you'll get the most up-to-date episode as soon as it's released. Thank you very much, and enjoy the show. Hey, Professor Phil, it's wonderful. Thanks for coming on and being so generous with your time. Um, I am excited to talk to you. There's a lot of uh, interesting stuff that, that, that is in your wheelhouse that I think would be interesting to get through. Appreciate you coming on. You're up in yeah, Ontario. Is that right? You got it. Awesome, awesome. So um, so here, let's just get right into it, man, because I don't know how much time you have, and we, we've got so much good stuff we want to cover. But, you know, we had a guy on, uh, I think about two weeks ago, his name is Mickey Bandor. He's an anthropologist, and so he was talking about human evolution. And he went through, you know, what plausibly was likely going on, which drove human evolution in the, you know, 1 million to about 300,000-year range where humans sort of started to evolve. And, and during that time, he postulates that humans evolved eating a diet that was probably somewhere in a 30 to 50% range of protein, most of, most of it coming from animal sources. Uh, and that is in great contrast to what we see in the normal population, particularly in Western society, where we're eating anywhere between 12 and 15% of our calories from protein. I know you have just tremendous knowledge around protein metabolism and, and, and that stuff, and so I want to touch on that. And so there are a lot of about protein. Protein damages your kidneys. Protein damages your liver. Protein causes you to leach minerals from your bone and you'll get osteoporosis. Protein drives accelerated uh, mTOR uh, amplification is going to lead to cancer and early aging. What are your thoughts on, you know, what's an appropriate protein amount in the human diet? And, and, then, and then if you can talk about those issues, because it's, it's just pervasive out there. Everybody I ever talked to tells me protein is going to make my kidneys shut down. That doesn't seem to be happening in, in a clinical experience. But can you talk about the science behind that or the lack of science behind that? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I think um, some of the anthropologic or teleological, whatever you want to call them, arguments around, you know, what it was that our ancestors ate are, are interesting observations. And, and I think we're probably certain that other populations probably by opportunity or, or environment or where it was that they were around maybe subsisted on different diets. But uh, I think, again, uh, the food records would indicate that there are populations that consume a tremendous amount of uh, uh, energy, dietary energy from protein. And there still are um, maybe modernized, of course, now uh, populations around the globe, the Inuit in uh, northern Canada and Alaska, who uh, have an enormously high protein intake um, with respect to their total energy intake. So, you know, I, I think from that perspective, you only um, have to look, you know, probably not too far away to find evidence that that's not an adverse way to live your life. Um, I always think that this is against the background of um, consistent and probably fairly high daily energy expenditures and movement, uh, you know, People didn't sit around like we do today. So uh, I always say is my writer statement is that my, my uh, facts around protein are as much to do with a, a fact around living actively and, and not living a sedentary lifestyle. So uh, the two go hand in hand. They're always one always complements the other and the two together are the best of all worlds, I think. Um, having said that, I, I think that, the as you said, the three most common myths are renal failure, um, bone mineral uh, metabolism, and then finally this sort of new, I'll call it newer, um, kid on the block, which is persistent activation of mTOR and then predisposition uh, for increased risk of cancer. So let's start with the renal failure. And what I can say is that, uh, and I'll, I'll say this unequivocally, is that um, when you look for clinical trial evidence of people consuming higher protein diets, and that, you know, relatively how you define that can, can vary a tremendous amount versus lower, uh, there is no evidence showing that higher protein leads to effectively um, some type of necrosis or damage of the main unit of the kidney, which is the, the nephron. Um, 
And that's a little bit different than the animal models that have been used to establish that thesis, which are rodents. And, you know, rodents lose glomeruli in their kidneys through different mechanisms than, than do humans. Um, but it's not necessarily, you know, my viewpoint. And, you know, we've got a, um, well, if, if the reviewers at a particular journal are, are just about done with us, we've got a pretty good meta-analysis coming out on this. And I can say that, that I know of another systematic review that will come out in advances in nutrition critiquing this whole position. And it really revolves around this called the Brenner hypothesis of, if you like, it's almost like that exhaustion uh, of uh, glomeruli and nephrons in, in kidneys. So the bottom line is there is no evidence. The World Health Organization agrees on this point. The Institute of Medicine agrees on this point, and they both say so in their guidelines. Um, so my only sort of inkling as to where this has come from is it's reverse or what I call circular logic in that people who have chronic kidney disease or who are in renal failure are placed on low protein diets and that prolongs their survival. So it keeps their kidney alive for longer. But that doesn't mean that it was protein that caused the decline in kidney function. So, you know, that's kind of where that argument sits. I, I, I think in short, no evidence, and I know that, you know, absence of evidence is an evidence of absence, but you, you know, we've, we've dug around for it. We've looked at, looked for it in systematic ways as of other people, uh, and it's not there. So I think it's a, it's a lot of fear mongering to say that protein will cause your kidneys to fail. It just, it just doesn't happen. Um, the, the other one around bone mineral metabolism, uh, it's called the acid-ash hypothesis, really goes to the, the point that uh, sulfur-containing amino acids uh, eventually metabolically could be turned into a small amount of sulfuric acid, which, you know, usually our bodies can buffer, but maybe we shift our pH, you know, towards the more the lower and acidic levels, and that then causes calcium to be resorbed from bone, to, if you like, um, neutralize that that effect. Uh, again, um, don't, don't take my word for it. But that's not the case. But the uh, International Osteoporosis Foundation meta-analysis meta published just last year said no evidence for that. In fact, it's exactly the opposite. Bone um, is, in most sites, it's about 40-odd percent con by content protein. Uh, it's, it's collagen, you know, and there is calcium obviously in there so it's not just a stick of chalk it is a dynamic pool of protein that turns over and the bottom line is is that when you've got adequate calcium and adequate vitamin d so bone is being supported that calcium is actually beneficial for bone health so it's it's actually completely the opposite of what people say so i think we can put that one to rest that's probably the easiest one uh to put to rest now the last round, the last one around persistent uh, activation of uh, of mTOR, really revolves around uh, the idea that, uh, and in particular, certain amino acids are stimulatory for keeping uh, mTOR on. So the the evidence that this is sort of counterintuitive in terms of, you know, what you don't want to do is that think model systems like cells and uh, rodents and um, genetic, if you like, conditions or, or uh, inborn errors of metabolism, things like dwarfism versus giantism, so a lack of or an excess of a growth hormone seem to support the concept that there's higher rates of cancer. Now, the way I view this is that we operate within a, a range like this, and this is sort of normal. So this is sort of the high end of normal. This is the low end accumulated is in uh, knockout animals or um, people who have a hyper or hypopituitarism or various forms of uh, growth hormone excess and they're not within the normal range they are persistently you know three four sometimes if, a, if it's a knockout animal it's you know it's black or white it's zero or nothing um, removed from normal so I question whether those models are applicable to the human situation where we're, we're, we're talking about, you know, variations in growth factors, you know, between, you know, this and this, and then somebody's talking about something up here or something down here. 
and and, and, I, and I, it's a bit bit of a lost in translation moment for me to see how these models really fit into this little range. Now, there's one um, in my mind, I think, horrific paper uh, that's out there. Levine is the first author. Walter Longo is the last author, in which there's an absolute uh, butchering of normal statistical procedures to look at NHANES data. Um, and if you really push you know, protein down to a low level and compare that group to like a big group in the middle and then another group at the high end, you can statistically pull apart some effects which sound impressive, i.e. A, a fourfold increase in risk for cancer, um, which is, and I just point this out, I say that's the equivalent of the risk assumed by people who smoke cigarettes for lung cancer. So. You know, you guys know the headline, right? You know, protein causes cancer. It's like smoking cigarettes, right? So, you know, I and you know, personally, I mean, I struggle with that because I'm a, I'm a vehement anti-smoking guy, and I, I sort of like if I honestly, if inside I thought, geez, I'm promoting something which is as bad as smoking, I would quit today, and I, you know, we wouldn't be talking on the podcast. But I just don't believe that. Um, somebody's got to do a better job with analyzing those data, and all I can say is we've begun that process. But as you know, uh, when you're second to the theory, in other words, we're trying to debunk something that's out there, the work taken is about you know 10 times as much to pull it down as it was to prop it up. So uh, let's just say right now, uh, I, I think that it's not a trite expression to say that a lot of things or everything seems to give you cancer. Um, and imbalances in certain things can certainly, you know, when it, they're going to increase your risk. But um, I don't think that higher dietary protein through a mechanism that leads to increased IGF-1 uh, is in any way related to some sort of cancerous, increasing cancerous risk uh, as far as I can see. Because cancer is not a unified mechanism. It's not, you know, it is in, in terms of how, what we call it. What triggers it, what starts it in various tissues is very, very different. So I I just, I sort I begin to glaze over, but I, I must admit we have to do a much more thorough job of doing that literature and, and taking a look at that. But I'm, I'm really skeptical on what's out there at this point. Do you find that, it, you know, I've heard about theoretical upper limits for protein intake. You know, some people say, you know, when you get up into that, 30 40 percent range or higher that that sort of tops out for humans there's some i think there's even some anthropologic data that supports that i know a fellow named jose antonio has done some work with with pretty high level protein dosing and he's not really demonstrated any sort of negative findings in there do you feel there's a there is a either theoretical or a, a practical upper limit for protein in the human diet yeah, you know, I mean, the the acceptable macronutrient distribution range says that, you know, 10 to 35%. So I tend to tell people, you know, 35% is an upper limit. But as you point out, and, and, and Joey's work, um, you know, well acknowledged, uh, nothing that he can see within the period of time of the supplementation. And I think he's got data out to a year. And then people say, oh, it's only a year. And I'm like, well, it... it, it it's pretty tough to get people out of two years, but whatever. Um, the point is, again, no negative effect. So there's no nothing happening in that period of time, and that's that's a feeding study. So I think from from my perspective, I tend to talk about no higher than 35, but in reality, I, once again, I, I think it's um, probably dictated as much by personal preference. I've gone through periods of my life where I've eaten a lot more protein than that, and I haven't felt in any way that, the, you know, there was something that was not happening. I just, you know, uh, I, I tend to like I'm a more more of an omnivore, I guess, than a, than a carnivore. But um, I, I really struggle to see what the, you know, what the downside is, uh, to be really honest with you. Yeah, I mean, and, and people will point to my, as you know, I, I pursue a pretty much a carnivorous diet. I pretty much eat about 35% protein. I mean, that's where I'm at. So I think I'm, you know, I'm sitting at a pretty reasonable level. Let me just change gears a little bit because this is another thing I know you like to talk about, the importance of lean muscle mass and preserving and building lean muscle mass as a function of healthy aging and health in general. Can you touch on that? I know you talk about that quite extensively, and I think it's, I think it's tremendously underestimated as to the importance of that. 
Yeah, so I mean, I think there's there's sort of uh, there's a core axiom in in the area of of exercise physiology and exercise science, and that is is the cardio respiratory or cardiovascular fitness. The more you can preserve that as you age, it's I mean, you know, people are advocating strongly for it. It's it's basically a fifth vital sign. It's as it's as as important in terms of a physiological indicator as probably anything else. And my my interpretation of that is that. It crosses physiological systems, so it's this talking to your heart. You've got to get your lungs working, and then you've got to actually transmit neural impulses and get your muscles working. And so, there's lots of physiology going on there, um, and, and there's no no question about that. I don't think. Um, I think that we're in the really early days of of sort of looking at the same concept for skeletal muscle in terms of the mass that you can retain and and strength. In terms of you know uh, the the more that you can hang on to that and the longer you can hang on to that, um, it's probably associated with uh, as big of a benefit as cardiorespiratory fitness. And there's probably a few things that it it actually you know exclusively has. So strength and power really only come from you know resistive exercise that that allows you to hang on to muscle mass. So I sort of you know in my world, if this is cardiorespiratory fitness and this is strength. They overlap to a much bigger degree than we would have said. Oh, well, you know, weightlifters out here, runners out here. And maybe it's true at the extremes, but in terms of the health benefits, the circles overlap a, a tremendous amount, and more probably than we ever thought. So, you know, my view is is that we're going to see some research emerge, particularly in maybe the next five to ten years. Uh, and there's some of it beginning to come out now, mostly observational, I'll admit. Um, but that you know, older people. Um, who are able to maintain muscle mass and strength, and then ultimately function, and are, are just much, much better off. Um, you know, in, in the words of Lou Schuler, a good friend of mine, he said they're they're a lot tougher to kill. So, uh, and, and I think that's probably true. Do you think there's a decreased rate of cancer, cardiac disease, neurodegenerative disease in those populations, as well as revenues that, that we can make that sort of? Well, uh, I mean, again, the, the observational data on this are, are, are that that's not the case. So, uh, you know, I think clearly that observational data, and it's probably, again, it's practice of dietary habits, but it's also the practice of resistive exercise. So, you know, you can't probably pull those two apart um, to, at this point anyway. And I would definitely say is that the two are going to go hand in hand. So I, I, I don't see anything like that. Um, I don't see any sort of downside of uh, advocating that that be uh, a goal for people. So in, in short, I, the answer is no. Okay. Hey, Zach, let me let you get in here, and then I've got some more. Because so, I want to talk to Professor Phillips about how we build muscle and the, and the physiology and what we know about that, because there's a lot of data and a lot of, a lot of variables that go into that, and I know you're an expert in that stuff. So, so Zach, Phil, if you got anything, I know sure. you got a couple things you want to ask him. Yeah, yeah. I, I want to kind of shift a little bit, but still stay on that kind of thought process of those higher end uh, recommendations of protein and kind of talk a little bit about gluconeogenesis because, um, you know, as an endurance runner, one thing, question I get from time to time is like, why would you let your protein get up to 30, 35%? and let this process of gluconeogenesis take place, why would you not just eat some carbohydrates? Like what's the, like why, why kind of jump through hoops, so to speak, to get that um, through protein rather than a carb? Um, so like, would you be able to kind of just tell our listeners a little bit like what is actually going on with gluconeogenesis in relation to like insulin versus like if I would eat a concentrated carb source and that sort of thing? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, you know, it, it's pretty clear that when you eat carbohydrates, that drives insulin up. And I think that there's some pretty good sort of theoretical work coming out. Jim Johnson is a Canadian researcher at the University of British Columbia. Um, and he, from, a, 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 again, a, a model system perspective, is quite certain, and I believe the data, that it's uh, insulin and its availability around that drives adiposity. And, and the, for the main reason that insulin is, and the process of lipolysis or breaking down fat is exquisitely sensitive to insulin. So as soon as insulin goes up, then that process of breaking down fat is shut off, it's flattened. So, you know, from the carbohydrate standpoint, um, that's, that's entirely clear. That's consistent with all human evidence that we have. 
showing it in a real world scenario of feeding people carbohydrates or restricting carbohydrates has become exceptionally difficult because it's mired in, unless you do controlled feeding trials for a much longer period of time than currently has been done, it's mired in human behavior. And, you know, that's, you know, the variables just go up and they skyrocket in terms of, you know, trying to control those things. So, you know, the choice to keep insulin low would be the choice to allow fat breakdown and then subsequently oxidation to proceed in an uninhibited manner. If you're an endurance athlete and, you know, Zach, I know how far you run, so uh, you probably could eat a lot of carbs and never really show too much of a downside to that. Uh, the, the choice in, in consuming more protein, of course, is to keep um, body proteins in good shape, top shape. But the extra protein can be used as a gluconeogenic substrate, and, and your body's very good at turning on that process and keeping your um, your blood glucose within a normal range, that there is an elevation of insulin that's associated with a bit of protein intake, but it's nowhere near as pronounced or as prolonged as when you get carbohydrates in the system. So, uh, I mean, again, I think that the human metabolic studies show this very clearly that when people are put in controlled situations fed higher protein, that they begin to use a, a slightly higher proportion of the protein that they're ingesting to make blood glucose. I mean, that's one of the, the metabolic choices that your body undergoes in a situation where uh, insulin is kept low and you don't have a lot of extra carbohydrates coming in by your diet. But it's, it doesn't mean that when your body begins to overproduce carbohydrates and you get an insulin surge as a result. That's I, I've read that in a, in a few pe people's blogs mostly. And that's not true. So uh, it's not like consuming a high protein diet is like consuming a high carbohydrate diet. They're, they're not the same because uh, gluconeogenesis to provide uh, glucose is not driven by substrate. So if you provide a lot more protein, it's not like your body says, oh, hey, you know, we're going to turn this into glucose. It just doesn't matter. Um, but glucose is one of these finely tuned. It stays within a very narrow range. You get a little bit when you consume carbs. But if you're not consuming a lot of carbs, then it stays within a very tight, narrow range. Yeah, just to kind of build on that too, because I think uh, one one thing I've been curious with the, recently is with like kind of this, the ketogenic diet as a whole, and uh, you know, you you if you dig into the kind of the I guess the modern ketogenic approach, there's kind of this uh, emphasis on keeping protein low, or I guess yeah. they'll say moderate, and you know, in in yeah, I look at it as low when I look at the numbers that I see some people eating, and um, is is and and I think that a lot of that is kind of coming from this kind of like what you were saying before, where you have these individuals that are kind of very far off from what would be the norm and they're trying to kind of fix themselves and they're lowering their protein in order to kind of drive ketone bodies. And and I think what end up ends up happening there is you get someone who's in generally good health but decides to take on a ketogenic diet and follows that same template they start kind of getting hung up on like how high can I get my ketone bodies? And we've yeah. talked about this in some of our other podcasts too, as to like, well, what's the goal of having your ketone bodies get up to like 4.0 millimoles versus having it yeah. at like, you know, just barely in uh, like at 1.0 millimoles. And um, you know, that, that's something I always kind of keep re-answering when people ask me about like where my ketones are, what I'm targeting. I tell them I really don't target it at all. I'm probably more often than not just barely in, like like a defined ketogenic state and then yeah. i'm also coming out and going back in from time to time especially when i'm in kind of like peak training mode uh mm -hmm. so do you think like someone who's like healthy generally speaking should they stop trying to kind of fixate on driving their ketone bodies up high and just say hey if i feel good um if i'm you know have all the other signs that would show i'm a good fat burner like not these like massive hunger swings and energy swings and stuff throughout the course of the day uh can they kind of be liberated on their protein consumption a little bit? Hey folks, Human Performance Outlier podcast is very happy to announce that we have brought on ButcherBox as one of our sponsors. Uh, with ButcherBox, you can get some high quality meat and cut out the middleman so that you save quite a bit on what would normally be the charge you'd get at the grocery store. Uh, with that, on your first order, if you use promo code HPO, you'll get 20% off plus free bacon. Sean, why don't you tell them about your experience with ButcherBox? 
Yeah, I mean, I've used ButcherBox, you know, for quite a while now. I've, I've run through several of their, their uh, different boxes. And, you know, for me, and, and by the way, that's a pretty good deal there uh, relative to some of the other stuff I've seen out there. But it has been, uh, you know, very consistently good, a good product. You know, it's always been, you know, the, the quality of the meat's been very good. Uh, for you guys that are concerned about it, they are a 100% antibiotic, hormone-free product that is a grass-finished product. The meat comes out of Australia. Uh, and it has a very, uh, I find, you know, because and I'll be honest, I, I, I prefer grain-fed beef in general, but I find that this particular uh, grass-finished product uh, tastes pretty solid. I mean, it's pretty good. You know, a lot of the, the grass-finished uh, meat can taste a little bit uh, almost gamey, uh, and I don't find that to be the case uh, with, with the Butcher Box product, and probably because of the like the time the animal spent on grass and they get a little bit more marbling in there and I think that helps. And so I've had a, uh, a very good experience with them and I highly recommend them. All right, folks, head over to butcherbox.com and hit promo code HPO. Thank you and back to the show. Um, I, I think I understand where this comes from or, or at least this has been what's sort of um, been said back to me by people who are in uh, you know, very well. They're, they're they're definitely in a ketogenic state, but as you point out, Zach, it's it's really, you know, uh, anything above you know point one or so uh, millimolar in terms of uh, ketone body. So if you're up around one, then you know, to me, you're definitely ketotic, and you're uh, in a situation where you've got a lot of excess acetyl CoA that's being formed, that which is what leads to the formation of the ketone body. So. The bottom line is, you know, one or above, then you're hitting your goals. I don't think that you can get to two or three millimolar and somehow think that that's going to enhance the rate of fat oxidation to the degree that, you know, it's necessary to be in that state. So, um, you know, what I worry about when people are in that state and consuming, you know, very low protein because they're, they're aware that protein causes a rise in insulin which then they say is, you know, that's going to turn off ketosis. And it may very well uh, for a short period of time anyway. Um, but at the same time, uh, you know, you run the risk of losing a little bit of uh, obviously body mass. So particularly uh, some of these athletes who are uh, like yourself, who are interested in, you know, running exceptionally long distances, then you can just dump a little bit of skeletal muscle. If that's, if you're okay with that and, you know, that's not a big deal, then and that's fine. Um, I've seen a couple of older, particularly men, uh, who were pleased with the weight loss that they have. I just worry about the amount of muscle they've lost when they're, you know, in a very ketotic state and, and consuming very low protein. So um, I think for most people, something up around one millimolar or thereabouts and a little bit above maybe is all that you really need to go to and, you know, getting ketones higher and going into this, you know, a very deep ketotic state really isn't necessary for the, to maximize fat burning, for example, the rates of, um, of lipid oxidation that you see in people who are at about 1.5 millimolar are some of the highest I've ever seen. Yeah. I mean, I, I've been, uh, sort of, sort of apathetic about caring about ketones quite honestly i mean i tell people that it, it doesn't really matter to me and I, I think the you know we have people up there sort of posting their numbers and almost bragging that they had a higher level of ketones to me i think it's kind of pointless but let me let me just talk about something another thing is kind of a little bit of a, a changing gears you know there is a continuous back and forth between these two camps of this you know it's all about reducing calories versus it's a hormonal thing and it's, 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 you know, you, you see these infighting, and, and to me, I don't really care about this stuff. I just want to see what, what, what are the results. You know, it doesn't matter. To me, it doesn't matter why something works. It's, you know, you get the results. But one of the things that seems to shake out is that protein kind of tends to be a wild card. You know, when we talk about calories, protein doesn't seem to follow the same rules as carbohydrates and, and fat with regard to its effect on, you know, if you eat too many protein calories, you don't seem to get fat, whereas if you eat too many fat calories or carbohydrate calories, then that seems to be the case. Can you touch on, is there any truth to that? And if so, can you touch on the mechanisms to why that may be true? Yeah, I mean, you know, we, we've done a little bit of work in the weight loss space, and everything that we've always focused on has been protein-based around uh, trying to preserve um, muscle when people lose weight, which obviously uh, people do. Um, and then usually in combination with exercise, which probably, uh, you know, as a card to play in weight loss is, uh, 
one of the most potent stimulators of uh, hanging on to muscle mass and probably a little bit more uh, potent than protein in and of itself. But, you know, one of the things that I point out to people is that from a satiety perspective, protein, uh, if it's not the most satiating, it's definitely up near the top. Um, whereas things like carbohydrates and particularly the more simple uh, and starchy the carbohydrates, then the satiety effect is relatively short-lived. Plus, then you get the rise in insulin. So, I mean, from my perspective, protein serves a number of roles in a, in a weight loss situation. First of all, you hang on to a little bit of skeletal muscle, which I think is important. Second, uh, you tend to enjoy a little bit better stability of blood glucose through the mechanism that we chatted about in gluconeogenesis. And then finally, uh, you know, there's there's two things with respect to protein. First, it's a it's a quite a satiating macronutrient, and you know, from every biochemical perspective, if you can twist metabolic pathways backwards and forwards to find this, there really are you know one or two uh, amino acids of the twenty that we we consume that are good substrates for de novo lipogenesis, so making fat and. You know, in reality, fats are carbons and hydrogens. Uh, carbohydrates, you've got an oxygen there, but obviously what makes the protein unique, you've got a nitrogen. Once you've taken the nitrogen off and you make urea, then you've got a carbon-hydrogen skeleton. But most times, it just gets burned or turned into some other inter, uh, metabolic intermediate. But the oxidation of protein uh, carbon skeletons is, is pretty low, and then they're conversion to lipid is exceptionally low. So it's a really poor substrate for um, de novo lipogenesis. So I, I, as you as you pointed out, Sean, I, like I believe, um, and I think the evidence would back this up, that you know adding extra protein calories, it's really hard metabolically and even in a caloric surplus to turn the extra protein into fat. It just doesn't happen. Against the backdrop of you know, uh, uh, of extra calories from other substrates, then all bets are off. But from a pure protein standpoint, um, I just don't think that it's uh, anywhere near uh, as potent as either excess lipid or carbohydrate consumption that leads to um, fat gain, which is really the important point. And, and I, you kind of, with the metabolism of, of protein being, you know, more difficult to turn into fats, I know some people often talk about the thermic effect of, of, of protein as well. Does that, does that fall into what you're talking about there in your view? Yeah, I mean, I, I put the thermic effect in there. Um, I tend not to, you know, cite it as a major mechanism, but it, you know, every little bit counts in the end. And for some people, there's no doubt in my mind that the the extra little bit of uh, energy expended in assimilate metabolism and assimilation of protein uh, would begin to add up in the end. So, uh, like you said, I mean, it, it, it's there. Uh, it's not big, but I guess if you add up to the small little pieces along the way, it could become substantial. So, again, um, it's it's part of the, the rubric of why I tend to suggest, you know, that protein is probably um, one of the most important substrates in, in a weight loss scenario. Let me. This is a topic that I think a lot of people want to talk about. I certainly want to talk about this. Is this an important the uh, the way we build muscle now? You know, obviously, muscle building muscle is going to be the the net effect of muscle protein synthesis and muscle protein breakdown. There's a lot of variables that impact that. And I know you've written extensively on that. In fact, I just saw a paper that you guys released today talking about omega threes and their role in some of the other things in resistance training. And so, just to talk about a, a couple different uh, uh, topics as as a as a uh, are relevant to muscle, uh, the net, net muscle building, uh, protein, fat, so, well, and I should say protein, how they're sourced, whether animal or plant proteins, uh, different types of fats, whether ketones have a role, how carbohydrates have a role, what the role of insulin is. I know we talked about insulin and its, and its role in inhibiting lipolysis and storing fat, but it does have a role in, at least I believe it has a role in, in, in muscle building. And then, and then other hormones like testosterone. Can you can you kind of give us the the overall package and the overall picture as, as well as you understand it to this point? Yeah. So I mean, the the analogy that I use in the kind of thumbnail sketch is to talk about protein synthesis. Um, and if muscle is a wall, uh, synthesis is putting bricks into the wall, and then protein breakdown is taking those same bricks out. And um, you know, obviously, more bricks going in than bricks going out, the wall gets bigger. 
Um, and in the converse situation, so, you know, if you ever had a cast on your leg or your arm and you've seen atrophy or you've been in uh, bed rest or something where you've been in a disused state, and, you know, some people argue that we're in a chronic, maybe not disused, but definitely an active state, um, then then muscle mass declines. And, and, and in some cases, you know, you can think of the, the intensive care unit patient, it, it declines re- really rapidly. Um, you know, so the influence of all of these factors then is, you know, which button does it push? Does it push the synthesis button? And the most potent that we, you know, non-pharmacologic that we know is resistive exercise, so lifting some weights. Um, dietary protein creeps in there as a substrate. And, you uh, you know, we've got, I think, one of the, the, the better sort of evidence-based statements showing that protein does, in fact, enhance uh, muscle mass gain if you supplement with it. Um, the fatty side of things and it is a difficult one, but you know the evidence that uh, a lot of other people have, and and, and I think we're going to contribute to in the next year or so, um, is that omega three fats, so long chain polyunsaturated fats, uh, do something to the muscle. We're not entirely sure yet to enhance um, protein synthesis, enhance anabolic sensitivity of muscle to the provision of amino acids, and we're not really sure how or why that works, but people like Bettina Mittendorfer at Washington University have led the charge on that. Um, Hormone-wise, the way I view insulin and the way I talk about insulin from a muscle protein synthesis standpoint is that it's permissive. In other words, if you have insulin around, even at sort of, you know, basal to mildly enhanced through protein consumption levels, then protein synthesis proceeds. Um, it, you don't need a hyperinsulinemic state that you, that you might get. So in other words, people say, all oh, for protein to work, you have to have some carbs around to stimulate insulin. I, I don't think that's the case at all. So it, it does play a role, um, but it's more permissive rather than stimulatory. And I, again, that's some of our work, work from Blake Rasmussen uh, at the University of Texas Medical Branch and Luke Van Loon over at Maastricht University. Um, Testosterone is another one of these sort of normal range things. You know, at the high end of normal, you might enjoy a little bit of a benefit. At the low end of normal, uh, you might be at a bit of a disadvantage. If you're on something exogenous, then there's no question, um, and some people still ask me this, that steroids work. (laughs) They work well, um, you know, when monitored particularly so that they're uh, they're in a, a range where it's quote unquote safe. So in other words, it's not having some negative side effects. Then I think, um, anybody who's been on them either clinically or recreationally will attest to their potency. Um, but that's a lot different than variation within the normal diurnal range, which is probably pretty small for most people. Um, but I know that there's, there's quite a lot of argument around, you know, what is really clinically low, what is clinically high, should you try and um, mess with these uh, very uh, obviously potent anabolic hormones. Uh, So, you know, the the one thing that we do know is that as soon as a man's diagnosed uh, with prostate cancer, one of the frontline therapies is to put that person on androgen deprivation therapies, which knocks testosterone down to next to nothing. And that's a remarkably effective therapy at um, prolonging lifespan, not really enhancing quality of life because you can imagine losing your testosterone overnight when you take the drug, but definitely um, uh, in, in enhancing uh, the lifespan of, uh, of men who are on that therapy. Yeah, this, is, this is one. This is one thing that's kind of interesting because you know I I was very public. You know I've been on this diet and I and I released my labs and I got testosterone. My testosterone was relatively low on one blood reading and everybody's taking that out. That you know it's some horrible thing. And, and you point out the diurnal variation. You know it changes throughout the day. It re, it changes in response to exercise. You know I, I know Jeff Fullick and, and some others did did a, did some research regarding that where they looked at a high protein low carbohydrate diet and they saw a relatively low resting testosterone level, but then the response of testosterone to exercise was within normal range or even in the high range. And so um, do you see an effect with the way testosterone responds to resistance training having an impact here? Or is it, you know, is it just what it is when you wake up in the morning that that makes a difference? Or or do we know that answer? 
Yeah, so, I mean, the work from our lab has really shown that these these acute spikes that you get in, in anabolic hormones, so growth hormone, IGF-1, testosterone, post-exercise are probably, A, they're, they're short, they're relatively short-lived, uh, and B, they're, they're again, they're within the, the normal diurnal range. I don't know that they're overly uh, effective uh, as a stimulus for protein synthesis, but um, as you point out, uh, I mean, we're really at our peak in terms of testosterone, probably around, for most men, at about 4 to 5 a.m. Um, so if you get a blood draw done then, that's probably the highest you're going to be. And they change from month to month, depending on diet and training stress and, you know, life stress and a whole bunch of other things as well. There are people who, you know, clinically and verifiably are in a hypogonadal state, so low testosterone clinically. But the range of what is normal um, is pretty substantial. Uh, and, and again, I think, you know, most of my sort of replies to people say, oh, I'm on the low end of normal. And I'm like, well, what does that mean? You know, and they're like, well, I think I'm, I'm not building muscle because of this. And I'm like, well, um, I guess you could supplement and get to the higher end. And then I would think that you would get more muscle, but now you're putting yourself persistently in a higher state and not the fluctuations that we're talking about here. So that's a little different um, than talking about, you know, transient short-lived fluctuations. But, you know, to my mind, um, until it manifests itself as clinically relevant symptoms, and this would be things like, uh, you know, uh, you feel a reduced drive, desire uh, in terms of, you know, you can talk about depression, uh, your, your libido is reduced. Um, and you're, and you're getting that type of symptomology really for most people, I, I would be tempted to say, uh, not to mess with those levels too much. Yeah. I've, I've constantly beat the drum about clinical, uh, clinical function trumps, you know, any kind of single, single derived lab value. I think it's kind of silly that we, we, we sort of run everything through a lab value and, and discard the, disregard the clinical stuff. Um, let me just, uh, because I want to just kind of elaborate a little bit more on this point that you talked about. You, you talked about insulin being permissive, and we are constantly told that, you know, you need uh, a carbohydrate in there to, to spike your insulin real high. It's because it's going to have an anabolic effect, and you're saying that's not been the case. Because people ask me continuously, you know, because I'm on this real, basically diet that doesn't have any carbohydrate, if you can build muscle. I have seen many people do so. They put on muscle. They've gotten stronger in the absence of carbohydrates, which I think is interesting. I think it's unique. One of the things, you know, most, and I'm sure you'll be willing, I mean, you'll agree with this, most of the data you have looking at subjects when we look at protein requirements and so on and so forth have always been in the state of a person eating a normal omnivorous diet. So we don't really have a, a good deal of research on people that are you know, eating carnivorous diets or eating, you know, very uh, uh, carbohydrate-restricted diets with regard to some of the data you have. Is there any comment on on, on that? I know some people said if, if you eat less carbohydrates, then you should eat more protein to make up for that. Yeah, so, I mean, I th I, one of the things that I think is, is quite clear, and even if you uh, consume protein in the form of, of meat, you know, which would be exclusively what you're consuming, uh, is that in isolation, the, the consumption of that, you, you will get a mild stimulation of insulin secretion. You know, uh, a number of amino acids are what we call insulinogenic. They, they, they act at the level of the beta cells of the pancreas to stimulate insulin release. Clearly, it's nowhere near as potent um, as the stimulation of insulin release to get carbohydrates. So that comes back to Zach's question of... Uh, you know, a lot of people are, I want to be, instead of just ketotic, I want to, you know, get up to three, four millimolar uh, ketosis. And so, yeah, you can do that if you basically take protein and carbohydrate down to next to nothing um, and consume exclusively or very close to exclusively fat. Not, uh, not easy to do, I would imagine, or uh, to my mind, overly palatable. But once you're in a ketotic state, you're in you know, more ketosis doesn't do much in terms of what I could think. Um, I think the important point to make, though, is that coming back to the insulin levels, is even that mild elevation of insulin you get with protein ingestion would be more than sufficient to allow protein synthesis to proceed at its maximal rate. In other words, there's not a necessity for consuming carbohydrate or in any way to, you know, spike or enhance insulin. 
um, to allow this to, to, to go on. And, and, and that's been really eloquently demonstrated a number of times. But a guy named Paul Greenhoff and uh, the late professor Mike Rennie did probably the best job on that. And um, as I said, you know, in, as long as insulin's there, in other words, you're not, um, you know, diabetic to the point or type 1 diabetic that you haven't taken a little bit of insulin, uh, the bottom line is is the protein synthesis proceeds. So I, I don't see any um, at least biochemical notional evidence that would suggest you need to, you know, underscore need to have carbohydrate and insulin around to build muscle. It, you know, building muscle happens, um, as I said, with a combination of, uh, of stimuli and resistance exercise, the most potent. You've got anabolic hormones out there like testosterone and then protein. Then, you know, so long as those are all sort of check, 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 we've got them in a normal range. Yeah, we're do, we're lifting weights, and yes, we've got a little bit of extra protein, probably, you know, on a, a mixed diet between 1.6 and 2.2 grams per kilo. Uh, if you want numbers, then uh, you, you're you're going to gain muscle. It'll happen. Let me. Uh, because you talked about obviously the the effects of anabolic steroids that they work and that's clear I, I think anybody that has half a brain will admit that I mean I, I guess sometime ago you know maybe 20 30 years ago they said that there's no evidence they work which I thought was a joke I've been I mean I've been I've been around this lifting weights for 40 years now I mean it's it's clear they work you know I, I don't use them but I mean you know certainly I've seen people and I know they I know they work well but let's talk about uh, other supplements, uh, if, if you if you if you have some information on that, that seem to be effective or may or may not be effective, things like creatine and beta alanine and things like uh, maybe carnosine, carnitine, do they have a role? Uh, and how effective are they? Yeah. So the the only supplement that I think I can say and I could come down and say, you know what, it works, uh, good effects, been around for a long time, well tested, safe, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, is creatine, and there's no question that you know it has some role in either endogenously affecting anabolism, um, or at least in allowing you to do more work uh, to promote the anabolic effect of you know resistive exercise. And um, it's it sort of falls in that that grade A uh, evidence category. Some of the other uh, supplements you mentioned, um, again, a little bit probably too early to say on uh, things like beta alanine, but maybe, um, and a few of the others, you know, there there might be some evidence out there, but it's it's not as strong as it would be for uh, definitely for protein and definitely for creatine. Um, to my mind, there are a lot of um, other supplements. People talk about, you know, beta hydroxy, beta methylbutyrate or HMB. Um, which is a metabolite of leucine being potently anabolic. And I just sort of remind anybody that, you know, likes to cite some literature that's out there, that this is a metabolite of leucine. And so it's not like it's, I, I don't see how it can be much more effective than leucine could be because it's probably fulfilling exactly the same role. And we know that it signals through the same pathways. So, you know, I, I, I kind of glaze over when it comes to uh, supplements beyond creatine, I'll be honest. Um, but, you know, once again, uh, time marches on and people will do more studies. And maybe I can, you know, come back in a year or two years from now and say, you know what? There's been some pretty good studies done on this. And now we, we do think that it's that it's there. Um, as you mentioned, Sean, you've been around this for long enough. And I, I'm probably in the same ballpark. And I've seen uh, supplements come and go. And that generally to me indicates that people tried them and, and nothing happened. So uh, people stopped spending their money on them, which is why they go. So, um, you know, uh, things like uh, creatine have uh, have been around for a long time, probably because of, as you say, the, the research, but just the, you know, uh, my own personal experience has, has been good. So um, I'll, I'll kind of leave it at that. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, it's kind of interesting that the uh, you know the supplements have uh, you know it's, it's 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 exactly right. You know, you see all these things have gone gone on through the years, and you, they're they're good. They're they're hot for about two three years, and no one buys them any anymore. But just a personal anecdote for me, I remember when I when creatine first came out, and I actually used it. I anecdotally saw. I mean, that's when I was doing more powerlifting and bench pressing. And I went my bench press went from two twenty five from eighteen reps to about twenty four reps, which I thought was. You know, a pretty pretty interesting uh, improvement. Now, I will point out that you get a lot of creatine in red meat, <laughs> and you get a lot of leucine in red meat, and so it's it's just kind of funny that maybe that that to me is is probably one of the better 
supplements out there, if you want to call it a supplement. Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't disagree with, um, you know, your red meat comment, and, and usually the retort is, but you got to eat a lot of red meat, but uh, you fall into the category where <laughs> I, I would probably say is that you're getting a pretty good daily creatine intake and leucine as well. I mean, one of the things that uh, the other sort of, um, if you like, uh, corollary benefits that goes along with the increased consumption, we've made this point in in several articles of uh, animal source proteins is that they're very nutrient dense. So um, intakes of other nutrients that just kind of happen to go along. So iron, B12, obviously lots of other things in, in red meat, but uh, in dairy and eggs, um, the more of those proteins that people consume, the better the diet quality score uh, tends to be. In other words, you know, you're, you're getting, you know, check. Yeah, it's good for calcium. Yeah, it's good. For, it's, you know, uh, it, it's harder uh, to find somebody who's deficient in those things, who's consuming the, uh, a higher uh, animal protein diet for sure. That that was what I was going to kind of follow up on with the uh, kind of Sean touched on it a bit. And then you did as well as, uh, you know, you get uh, like Sean eating, you know, four or five pounds of red meat a day. And then like even myself, I'm eating two plus pounds of red meat a day, uh, like is there like a margin of diminishing? Well, I'm sure there is, but like, do you know like where the margin of diminishing returns would be with like creatine? Are there any good studies that say like, oh, if you get this much anymore is just kind of a waste. And then um, I would assume that Sean is probably reaching that or getting at least right around there. Yeah, I, I'm not sure exactly where that is, but I mean, there are two ways of, uh, you know, getting more creatine into your uh, into your muscles. One is this sort of the traditional, what we call a loading protocol, which is to take, um, you know, large doses somewhere around 20 or maybe even more grams per day. Uh, and it's quite clear when you do that is that it's, it, it's sort of like a carb loading type protocol, but creatine loading is that you, you know, your muscles tend to accumulate it and build it up. And then you do that for a few days and then you drop down to a maintenance dose. Um, the loading phase is, is clearly a, a period of excess because we see lots of creatine coming out in people's urine. So, you, you know, you, it, it's just more than you need. Um, but these sort of more sustained uh, loading protocols rely on creatine intakes between probably about three to five grams of creatine a day. Uh, and then you're going to get up into these higher uh, levels that you see with the with the supplementation. So I would probably think is that, you know, at that type of meat intake, you're getting up around those levels, and that's definitely higher than the uh, than the average person out there for sure. So, um, you know, you're you're probably there. I you know, if I had to guess and say, you know, who are the people who are going to benefit most? Um, it wouldn't be people who are consuming between two to five pounds of red meat a day, and, and you know. The, the, it's been interesting that the the Danes who were, you know, sort of, um, you know, pariahs of exercise physiology, uh, as a population, they consume a lot of fish and particularly uh, herring, uh, which has a very high creatine content. And so it's it's been traditionally much harder to creatine load Danes, or much easier to creatine load people who are who are vegetarians, for example. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, people ask me about. Uh, creatine on, on a carnivorous diet, I said, don't waste your money. It's pointless. I don't think it'll have an effect. You know, it's, it's, it's like adding a drop of water to a bucket of water. I don't, I don't, you know, <laughs> it just seems a, a little bit silly. Hey, uh, Stuart, anything else out there that, that, that we haven't touched on you think is, is something that people will need to be aware of? I, you know, I, I, I don't think so. You know, one of the things that I, when I talk about the higher protein and a lot of people say, oh, there's, you know, there's no way I could ever eat that. And I think it really does come down. I mean, you got to make a mind shift in the way that you plan your food and the way that you consume it. And you just have to sort of, you know, pull yourself out of the notion that some of the other things that we've been told for a very long period of time are quote unquote good for us um, really are. And, and I think that the probably the, the biggest and or well, there's two great injustices that we did um, to ourselves and, and uh, unwittingly. Um, uh, I, I would say, Sean, is that you and I are, are of similar vintage is that we could remember the, the days when, you know, carbs were good and fat was bad. 
uh, without any direction as to which carbs and which fats or anything else like that. And so carbohydrates were wholesale, or excuse me, fats were wholesale taken out of foods and replaced with carbohydrates, but basically replaced with, uh, with simple sugar, refined carbohydrates, a lot of starch. Uh, there was no change in, in, in energy of the foods that we were consuming, but we just, you know, we just had to get fat out of there. The other introduction was, uh, you know, was trans fats. Um, that, and that's, I'm, I'm pleased to say, is probably, you know, those are going to go back down to next to nothing because we realized how bad those are, of course. And probably, you know, to some degree sodium, but I could probably pass on that debate. The carb-fat imbalance has been you know, something that, that really we, we inflicted upon ourselves and probably contributed to um, metabolic syndrome, type 2 diabetes, uh, diabetes uh, or diabetes, if you want to call it that. Uh, and through inactive lifestyles, then you've really created this obesogenic environment. So uh, I think people need to um, try and get themselves out of the, the you know, the carb Carb good, fat bad, dogma, and saturated fat, you know, worse, et cetera. I think that you're going to see in our lifetime that saturated fats, because cholesterol is, you know, that's back on the menu. We're allowed to eat eggs again. Uh, I think that the, the case against saturated fat, I mean, I, that's, that's going to come down, um, you know, in clinical trials probably and uh, more and more observational data to show that it's not as big a deal as we once thought. So... You know, uh, paradigms change. Science is an evolving thing. It's not absolute. And so still trust the science. Um, but, you know, keep your ear to the ground and try and get the signal out of the noise. And, man, that is... I kind of lost you at the end. Let, let me just... Uh, one other thing, and, I, and I, I, I... Because I know we kind of touched on this a little bit. How important is resistance training in all this, you know, how much, what's a minimum effective dose that people need to be getting? Yeah, the minimum effective dose is, is really hard for me to say. I mean, guidelines talk about at least twice a week. I would probably fall into that category that people should be trying to do it. And if you want an easy split, it's upper and lower body. Uh, I think it's important. I think you're going to see strength as a, as a biomarker of, uh, uh, healthy or successful aging, it's going to emerge as being either as important or definitely having as strong a predictive capacity for uh, people to uh, eat successfully and disease-free as, as fitness in the next few years. What do you use for a, a, a measure? I know a lot of people use grip strength as a proxy measure for overall body strength. There's been some recent criticisms using that as a as a you know decent proxy for that do you do you how would you assess that for the average person to to say you know how do we how do we know how strong you are yeah i mean you know grip strength is a, a sort of a universal indicator no doubt i mean it's an easy one to measure in a doctor's office and of course it you know there's a lot of correlates with you know having a stronger grip and being sort of stronger universally personally i'd like to see something to do with uh with your knee extensors with your with your quad muscles i mean those are the ones to accomplish what I think is the most functional uh, lift for most people, which is getting out of a chair. So, you know, I'd like to see something like that implemented, but I understand practically that may that may not or may never happen uh, until we can begin to show how important it is. And so, we, you know, we've got a lot more work to do, but uh, it, it, it's definitely uh, a big deal. I think it needs to be done to a greater degree. Yeah, but you know, you talk. There's a there's a like the sit and stand, you know, sit and st stand test. And there's some other things out there that do, but you know, that that really is is tailored to the to the end of the spectrum. This is the 70 year old. Can the 70 year old get out of the chair? Well, really, we need to be doing this stuff to 20 year olds and 30 year olds so that they can preserve that and start earlier along on. So I'd like, you know, hopefully, you know, we can develop some sort of clinically applicable and practical test that we can we can do to sort of catch that early on. Yeah, no, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, I think that it, it's pretty clear that once you're you're seeing, you know, measurable declines in a sit-to-stand or a timed-up-and-go test, then you're you're already on the downslope. And one thing that we found with older people is it's a lot easier, as you point out, to um, try and mitigate the decline rather than rescue, reduce function at a later stage in life. So, you know, in your 
30s, 40s, 50s, then that's the time when I think you need to put some money in the bank and be as active and uh, obviously um, try and stay as strong as possible so that when you're into your 60s and 70s, and, and you know that aging is going to kind of bring you down, there's no question about that, then the bottom line is, um, you know, try and fight the fight and do what you can to prevent that. I have a bit of a follow-up question with that too. I think, um, you know, I I agree 100% that like, you know, the resistance and the movement and stuff are just is huge. You know, I, I've seen that so many times with older people where they're really active and then, you know, something happens where they get hurt and then they just go downhill really fast after that without really anything else changing. Um, so like my question is kind of like if someone has an accident where they like they break a leg or break an arm, you know, people probably their first time experience or know someone where, you know, they get that cast off after, you know, six, eight weeks and the muscle in that area is just noticeably reduced, uh, or atrophied. Uh, is that like, if, if you're in that situation where you have that immobilization and there's really nothing you can do about it until the bone heals uh, and you can get the cast off, is that a time where it's just like extra prudent to be trying to hit those upper levels of the protein um, can that, will, will that kind of help preserve some of that or is it just going to kind of degenerate at a pretty rapid rate from inactivity either way? Yeah, it, that's a great question. And, and I think exactly like the answer is, is there's probably, you know, there's a lot of theoretical papers on what you could do to try and uh, attenuate the atrophy that happens with disuse, but it's pretty hard to out nutrition disuse if that's the right way of saying it. So, um, you know, to give you the, the, the nth example is if you take people up in the space where there obviously there's no gravity and so there's, you know it's really difficult to generate forces and uh, stay in shape, et cetera, et cetera. Um, then those people come back with um, you know diminishments of muscle mass, bone density, and everything else like that that are pretty hard to overcome. Now the more physically active you are up in space, the better it is. But if you can't. Um, there is some work, for example, showing that if you have one arm in a cast, and you lift the, the other arm, that you can preserve some of the arm, you know, being uh, in a sling or a cast. So that's one way of doing things. Um, but if you can't do anything like that, then I think again, you, you know, then we begin to fall into you know some of the categories like uh, an intensive care patient and. Nutritionally, it's it, it it's hard to do. It's it's hard to get them to hang on to muscle mass. But you know, the higher end of the protein spectrum would be um, where a lot of the recommendations are targeted at trying to minimize the loss of muscle. Um, from a clinical perspective, it's partially successful, I would say. Um, but in reality, it's going to be tough to do. I don't think it's a bad practice, and if you can't obviously do anything, then it's probably worth a try. Bottom line, like I said, it's 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 tough. Um, so you're going to experience some degree of atrophy and strength loss no matter what. Um, so just be prepared. I think the, the answer I would give is to work hard in rehabilitation. And, and that would be the time to really push up protein and the, the anabolic side of things. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I'll just make a comment on that just, just from observation. Um, you know, the, the thing you talked about is, you know, if you've, got, if you've broken an arm and you stick it in a cast or a sling, and but you do systemic exercise with the other arm and the rest of the body, you kind of set up this metabolic neurohormonal milieu that will at least preserve some of the muscle there. And that, you know, because I, I get a lot of people that go on this carnivorous diet eating a bunch of protein, and they, 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 they note some improvements in body composition uh, you know, and again, it's all anecdotal, so can't really verify this. But they'll say they feel like they've got they've, they've noticed a little a little bit more muscularity. Now, now, certainly not to the level of people that are resistance training, but they're noticing that they notice a little bit of improvement in body composition. So, you know, maybe it's this you know this general metabolic effect uh, in that situation. It, it certainly could be. I would think that people who, particularly if they were on the lower end of the protein intake spectrum, and they're maybe a little bit older who made that switch would, would notice some improvements in, uh, in muscle mass, maybe function as well. There are, you know, little snippets of research that would suggest that, that that could happen. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't certainly wouldn't doubt it. Yeah. Interesting stuff. Well, Stuart, it's a, such a pleasure to have you on. You're such a wealth of knowledge. Um, maybe, you know, we get you back on down the road, you know, as more research comes out, cause it's great stuff. Uh, Zach, um, any final words? 
Uh, no, I think that was that was great. It was uh, a pleasure to have you on, and uh, I think our listeners will really love the information you shared. And like Sean said, uh, we'd love to have you back on down the road. Well, I appreciate you guys having me on. Uh, part of my job is to try and get the information out to a broader audience, and so you guys are helping me do that. And and so thanks thanks very much for having me. How do we? How do people get get in contact with you? I know you. I know you're on Twitter. Um, you know, is there other other places they can they can find your work? Yeah, I mean, it, it's I'm hard to I'm hard to miss on uh, if you Google Stuart Phillips and McMaster, then I pop up almost right away. Um, I am on Twitter. Uh, I do have uh, a pretty good presence on Facebook as well. I'd like to say I do Instagram, but I, I really don't. And beyond that, social media. Um, I let my kids run my show. I got to be honest with you, but uh, I, I try to get out there uh, as much as I can. Uh, I do a fair amount of public speaking as well. So, uh, you know, and I'm always happy to receive emails and try and answer people's questions. So don't be afraid to send me one if you'd like. Wonderful. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Sean and I are excited to announce that Human Performance Outliers podcast has partnered with Thrive Market. Thrive is an online grocery store that focuses on making high-quality grocery shopping easy. By going to thrivemarket.com backslash HPO and shopping, you not only support the HPO podcast, but will also receive 25 to 50% off traditional retail prices. On top of that, with every annual membership, Thrive will donate a free annual membership to low-income family, teacher, or veteran. If you don't make up your membership fee and savings, Thrive will refund your membership fee. The link can be found in the show notes. Thanks for your support. Thanks again for tuning in to the Human Performance Outliers podcast. Just a couple quick notes before you leave. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us at hpopodcast at gmail.com. That's hpopodcast at gmail.com. We're both also on social media. On Twitter, you can find me at zbitter. That's at Z-B-I-T-T-E-R. And you can find Sean at SBakerMD. That's at S-B-A-K-E-R-M-D. We're both also on Instagram, where you can find me at Zach Bitter. That's at Z-A-C-H-B-I-T-T-E-R. And for Sean, it's at Sean Baker 1967 That's at S-H-A-W-N-B-A-K-E-R-1967. Thanks again for tuning in to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast.